0: RadioInfluence.com.
1: All right, guys, welcome back uh, to the Corporate Tea Podcast. I'm so excited today about my special guest. Um, This is going to be an exciting conversation. That's probably going to take some twists and turns. But stay with us because there's so many amazing things that. We are going to talk about today. But first, let me introduce my special guest. Um, her name is Stephanie Drinka. She is the communications director of Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation, um, and is the founding edi- ed- editor I'm sorry, of Visible Magazine. She is a Korean adoptee writer and a 2021 Public Voices Fellow of the Opt-Ed Project. Welcome, everybody! Stephanie Drinka.
0: yay! Thanks so much for having me.
1: (laughs) One day we're going to get a sound effect. That's like. (laughs) Um, But thank you so much for for coming on the show. Um, You know, you're someone who I consider um, sort of a new, young, fresh voice um, in uh, not only social justice, but you following you allows me to stay so abreast on topics outside of, um, the, the black community particularly, but you just have such a broader equity lens on so many different things. And it helps me to be like, you know, I'm always like DMing you, like what's going on? What did I missed? Where can I get this information? What can I read? Um, and so, and, and honestly, I think that's a lesson for everyone who's listening is that, you know, When you consider you're someone who is sort of a budding racial equity leader, um, uh, you, you have to stay aligned to amazing folks. And Stephanie, you are one of them. So I'm going to stop talking, let you introduce yourself and talk about a little bit about what you do. I, I gave a brief bio, but what you do. And then, of course, because I'm the corporate T, you have to talk a little bit about your career. What brought you to this front door? Because everyone listening is really interested in the career paths of of, of a lot of diversity, equity, inclusion, and, of course, Uh, racial equity leaders. So tell us a little bit about yourself and and what got
0: you to this front door. Absolutely. So I was asked an interesting question during a meeting um, yesterday, and it was, what was the most significant moment that impacted your racial equity journey? And so for me, I have to start at the very beginning. Um, And my beginning was when I was three months old, and I arrived from Seoul to Chicago Hare Airport, um, and I was adopted into a white family. Uh, I, I at the time, I didn't know very much about my, you know, the first three months of my life. And so that's where my story began. And growing up as a transracial adoptee, a Korean American with white parents, I knew as soon as I was cognizant of the world that I, I was different from my family, that I had a very different experience, appearance. Um... People had different reactions to me than they did my mom, my dad, my brother. And so race and racism was something that I was sort of embedded in my story from the beginning. Um, And that led me to where I am today as the communications director for a racial equity organization, Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. The path to get to this point was very long and winding and uh, a little bit sometimes chaotic. And I think the biggest challenge that I had was accepting my identity, accepting my story as a, a source of power. And finding an organization and a and a job where my skills and my experience aligned with my values. And so I have been in really sort of amazing jobs and organizations and companies that I excelled in technically on paper. But I would have challenges either interpersonal or with the mission or with the board. Yeah. And so it was always a, a compromise in some area where I would... I'm doing really well, um, technically, I'm making, you know, a decent salary, I have, you know, sort of a long career trajectory here, but my heart is not in it. Am I serving my purpose? And so it was a lot of sort of trying to fit, um, what is it, the square peg into a round hole? Yeah. Until, yeah. you know, I decided to go off on my own finally, and it gave me the freedom to say no to organizations, to say no to work. And while I was doing that, Dallas TRHT was sort of my first client, and it was really clear through my work with them as a contractor, that was where my vision was aligned. The need was there. And when the opportunity presented itself last year to join full time, you know, it was the culmination of so many different moments of my life. But I am so blessed to be where I am and doing what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's an amazing organization. I'm a fan. At some point, I'm going to probably pull Jerry's arm um, to to get on this podcast because I think he's just such a brilliant mind. Um, And just his historical knowledge is like his brain is a book. Um, And so I was super excited when I, when I knew that you would be, you know, coming on full time with that organization and being the communications director, because I I know your, you know, your heart, your vision, and I think it's a perfect fit. And I think that's also a great lesson to people who are struggling inside corporate structures or even nonprofit. That's not to say that nonprofit structures are always, you know, sometimes they're even more problematic, but they're, they're struggling in their career path and trying to find that alignment. And I think when it comes to, I've I've you know, shared it's really about career contentment over the climb now, right? Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. you know, that's that's my thought. Um, but I want to go back to something that you said earlier, um because I think one of the things that's most interesting about your story is being a transracial adoptee. And so, for one, I want to talk to you about that. One, to explain the terms, that term to our listeners mm-hmm. so that they understand what that means but also you know offline we were kind of talking about i kind of came to that term originally from a woman named angela tucker who has a a, a movie out on like prime called closure and it is the most like captivating movie to watch like it is so intriguing this story of a black woman who was adopted by a white parents who also had adopted, they had other, um, um, adopted children of varying races. And the whole thing is just super complicated in some ways, quite problematic when you watch it. Uh, and she's on this journey of closure to find her black birth parents, which is just in, it, in it of itself is intriguing. So I want to talk a little bit about, uh, before we deep dive into racial equity about, your story as an adoptee, what is a transracial adoptee? And what are things that people should know that are listening about this? Because I thought, I always thought of you know, racial equity or DEI and more of a construct of like systems and companies. But mm-hmm. then there's this idea of like the, the humanity piece of this. And adoption is not something that even occurred to me as perhaps being problematic or things that people should consider. So what is it and and what are the things that
0: people should know about adoption? Yeah. So I think transracial adoption is a very um, good example of how racism and race can um, be looked at from both the systemic lens and a very um, interpersonal and then internal lens. So to start, the concept of transracial adoption of um, children and infants being adopted into families of a different race, um, that only happens because uh, society has sort of deemed white families, white traditional, um, you know, man, woman, marriage, uh, families as sort of a norm. And also white families have access to more wealth because again, and the standard, right? And Mm -hmm. the standard. Um, And so they are able then to afford the fees for adoption. Um, and then you think about, um, I, I came from Korea, it was an international adoption, but um, the example that you gave Angela was domestic adoption. And so the the predominant um, race and demographic of babies and children in foster care systems is black and brown children. So the likelihood then of a white family adopting a child of color is how we have so many transracial adoptions. Um, And then on the interpersonal level, there's a lot of blind spots that white families have because for a lot of them, it's the first time that they've been exposed at this like close level to somebody of a different race. My parents, for example, were told by the adoption agency that it was best to like assimilate me and not make me feel like I was different. And so my mom would always say, oh, we're colorblind. We don't. We don't see you as Asian, you know, we don't see your color, but the problem was the rest of the world did. Right. And so um, I would experience racism, but then compounded with that is the expectation of adoptees to be grateful for being adopted because the narrative is, you know, you were chosen, you were given this like second chance at a better life and your family like provided for you. And so I never felt like I could be really open with my parents growing up about the racism that I faced, about the self-esteem issues that I had because then I was ungrateful. And so then I had internalized racism about, you know, looking like I did going to school in South Lake Carroll, which is a predominantly white upper class suburb where I stuck out like a sore thumb. And I, all I wanted to do was be blend in. It wasn't possible for me to blend in. So I just wanted to be invisible. I wanted to go through without being pointed out for being different. And I just wanted to exist, you know, without interruption. And that, really shaped who I thought I was, how I valued myself and saw myself fitting into the world. It wasn't until I went to college, got involved with Asian organizations, started learning about Asian American history, that I even sort of understood my purpose and where I fit into the larger scale of racism and racial relations and uh, realized that my voice was valuable and my story as unique and sort of an outlier as it is, can be really powerful to analyze some of those systems.
1: Yeah, I'd like to go back to one piece of something that you said, and I want to talk about saviorship, right? Because, you know, recently I noticed because I follow you on social and you are like a joy to watch because you so eloquently Um, will engage with the trolls from time to time. And I saw uh, a father who is an adoptee of uh, what I believe is probably an Asian American daughter. I I couldn't gather with all of the banter, but it seemed like he had a daughter um, that was maybe Asian American. And um, he kind of went back and forth with you about his disagreement on this topic. And there is this component of saviorship um, that exists in in this kind of paradigm. And how do you think that's parallel to what we experience in other systems like corporations and things of that nature? I thought it was so interesting to watch it play out and really how smug he was about, you know, sort of, you know, how great of a dad (laughs) he was. (laughs) Uh, so poor kid, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things, the feedback and the trolling that you get, I certainly get it as well. Um, but you, you have a unique story cause it's more tied to your unique experience. So, yeah.
0: So, um, the, the dad that I was engaging with on Twitter was actually, it was his biological daughter. He was married to an Asian woman. Oh, Okay. It was her, his half Asian daughter. And, you know, I don't normally engage with trolls because I try to protect my peace, but knowing that he had a young daughter and she, you know, I, I looked at his wife's Twitter page and she had shared class pictures of her daughter. She couldn't have been more than seven or eight. So at that moment I was like, if I have a chance to share my experience with him and make things a little bit different for her than I experienced, then I'm going to give him that chance. Um, But the issue was, which we see in so many spaces, if he has not experienced or witnessed interpersonal racism, bigotry, His, he says his daughter hasn't, which she's not even young enough to know if she has or, or not, but he denies racism altogether because he hasn't witnessed it personally. And that is what is really challenging, even in the nonprofit space. Right and that white saviorism, if white people feel like they do not hold internal um, biases that they are like um, exhibiting and, and they're not being discriminatory themselves, then sometimes they use that to deny the existence of systemic racism. And we, right. the, the philanthropy idea, you know, like putting a Band-Aid on things, like giving money to charity um, to, to make themselves feel better and like they're not racist without addressing and dismantling the systems that make that charity necessary in the first place is you know, sort of the whole problem with the nonprofit, like industrial complex. Uh, So yeah, it was a really specific example of someone, you know, erasing my and invalidating my lived experiences uh, and saying like, you don't like, he wanted, he wanted data. He wanted facts, which there are out there, but I was not going to do the emotional labor for him. Right. That's another problem with this world is that we are not valuing people's lived experiences. Like we do the credentials, the PhDs, the job titles.
1: Right. Yeah. No. And here's the thing, like we don't need all of the data on things we're passionate about either. Right. So if we were talking like, sports no one's ever like go find the stat right you know it's just like yeah it's so that's the interesting thing of it all right uh so that that in and of itself is such a I thought it was such an interesting parallel to watch play out because you know he is really sort of you know oftentimes I think that people think that racism is a particular person right Mm -hmm. like you know, if, you know, I think in everyone's mind, racism is like this, you know, middle-aged white guy that has a tiki torch that's going to like drag you out of your house and burn across the front yard. But the reality is, you know, racism is a system, right? And how we're participating varies, right? In in terms of maintaining supremacy. And I think the interesting thing is that there's so much dissonance that people create between themselves and like, what is truly reality. And so instead of him listening to your story and like you said, valuing your lived experience to say, huh, why don't I have a conversation with my wife or my daughter to see like, has anyone ever treated you differently because of the way you look? Um, You know, these types of things. My son is five and I notice even now he already is noticing differences, right? So he'll say, oh, there's a new boy in my class and he's brown like me, right? Like, you know, and and it doesn't mean that he's necessarily being treated differently, but it does mean that he's noticing that there are people like him and people who don't look like him, right? Yeah. And so I think that um, how we come to our lens of racial equity has a lot to do not only with our lived experience, but what we're willing to accept mm-hmm. and value. So that brings me to my next point. When you think about the work that you're doing, I, I see you kind of kind of becoming, you know, outside of Dallas Truth, racial healing and transformation, becoming this like kind of budding activist mm-hmm. um, and kind of shaping your own brand in a way um and whether intentional or not i think you just have this amazing voice and it's probably happening more organically but in your mind like what what is it that um you're trying to solve for in the world mm-hmm.
0: So on a a large scale, obviously, you know, my dream is the end of racism, for racial equity to have been achieved. But realistically, I am not going to see that in my lifetime. Um, And so I think all of us at TRHT and our community partners and everyone doing this work, we're trying to lay as many bricks in the foundation as possible with the time that we have. And for me, it has been um, an examination of, How can I make the most impact while I'm here? What are my unique set of skills um, that I can contribute to this larger cause that I'm never going to see really the actualization of? For me, I decided that is storytelling and it's creating platforms. You know, I came from the blogging and influencing world. I, I used to design websites, like help people be found. So now I'm using those skills to, you know, with Visible Magazine, Create a platform for people to share their stories, have somewhere where it's published, take that and leverage it, and share it, and you know, hopefully, reach the person that needs to hear it. And what has been interesting in the last, I would say, definitely few months, maybe year, I've started remembering that I need to do that for myself too. I right. lost my own voice um, at some point along the way because I got such, um, you know, I, I became a very supportive. Uh, person in this work, and amplifying other people's that uh, I forgot, I do have something important to contribute as well. And what has been amazing working with Jerry as my executive director, he reminds me like you are not we're like, I'm not your boss, we're partners like this belongs to you too it was so funny because we have this series called transformation Tuesday, where we investigate how race and racism impacts like really specific communities. And he was like, Stephanie, you should do one for Asian Americans. And it never even occurred to me to think about my own people. And like, sadly enough, like that was even before sort of the rise in hate crimes and awareness and the Atlanta shootings. And then really since then, my, you know, I studied Asian American studies in college, uh, but it was more for personal knowledge. I didn't have access to my history back then and I really wanted to make sense of my identity. So I took it sort of as, you know, just sort of as something that I needed as as a Korean adoptee to be connected to my culture. But now I have that background and the world is at a point where that knowledge is meaningful and could help, you know, shape the narrative. And so I feel this responsibility especially at this critical moment. To share my story, to highlight the history, to take everything I've learned with TRHT and our framework of, you know, changing the narrative, building relationships, um, advocating for equitable policies and practices, and now I have that amazing lens and framework to do sort of my expertise and put that in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I said, I'm a big fan of the organization,
1: and I think you know what you're doing is amazing. But something that you said that kind of resonated with me was, you know, really I think sometimes when you're doing this work, you're in the trenches, you're amplifying other things, you you sometimes lose sight of like where you can really um kind of raise awareness. So that said, you know, I you know, I haven't on this podcast had a conversation about the rise in hate crimes for Asian Americans. I'd love for you to talk about that and also a little bit about how we can make space and create space. I know one of the things that I super love about you, like in deep in my heart, is that when, they, when some of the awareness around Asian Americans were coming up, it became sort of this us versus them thing. And you're like, hey, 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 this thing is happening, but also your language is anti-black, right? This isn't a zero sum game. So we are, you kind of refocus the energies back to, you know, racism and not to marginalized groups being in competition. And that is one of the things that you model so well and I'm learning to do, right? Because our natural lived experience is to like, you know, we all align to what we're most like. So I appreciate you modeling that for those, because even sometimes in this work, we get it wrong, right? Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about what's going on in, um, you know, kind of with Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, as well as. Um, you know, sort of this idea
0: of how we can be better allies across all marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. Um, So what has been interesting in recent months is that people are saying, you know, there's this new wave of anti-Asian hate and racism, or it's like, it's something that just happened because of COVID and just happened because of Trump. But we know from history that this has been the case since we first arrived in this country. And that's what's so important to remember is, at TRHT, we talk about um, this false hierarchy of human value. So since America was founded, it was founded on the hierarchy where white was at the top of the hierarchy Mm -hmm. and Black people were at the bottom, because they had to dehumanize them enough to justify that exploitation um, through slavery. And then everyone else in the middle is still under white. Um, but it moves, right. it fluctuates where black and white right. is fixed. Yeah. but we and, only
1: focus on the bookends. I call them the yeah. bookends, right? White and black, we kind of get lost. But there's this whole there's full, full range.
0: History. There's a right. range that changes, and there's a range of emotions being in the middle and wanting to, you know, achieve whiteness because nobody wants to be at the bottom. And so. Asian Americans forget the the discrimination sometimes that we've faced because we've tried so hard to be proximate to whiteness thinking it would protect us from racism but it hasn't. If you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act, we were the first undocumented immigrants like they created laws because they did not want asian people they saw us as a threat they called us diseased they called our women prostitutes and and immoral and then that has changed over time only as it benefits white people so only you know during um you know world war 2 did Japanese people become this huge threat that needed to be interned? And then all of a sudden Japanese were model minorities during the cold war when China was the enemy. And then, you know, and then, then we saw it even as recently as the Muslim ban and post nine right. 11. And at, and the sad thing is a lot of the model, model minority myth was perpetuated to punish black people, to use Asian Americans, put them on a pedestal, say they pulled themselves up from their bootstraps. Look, we interned them and they're they're happy with look, us. Look how great they're happy. doing, right? We're yeah racial. What are you complaining about? Um, and that compounded with just cultural differences and you know, fear that white supremacy has created, that really pitted um, black people s- specifically against East Asian and Sadly, very much against um, my community, the Korean American community, which we saw during the LA riots, we see again, yeah. sort
1: of in and the and you workplace. and you see this sort of this sort of
0: narrative between East Asians, um,
1: uh, because also too, I want to say this really quickly. Asia is a huge continent. <laughs> yes. Okay. Primarily, most people think Asian; they think East Asian, but there are many other subgroups. Yeah. Um, and I think that's important um, to, to call out, especially as we think about some of the hate crimes that are happening and then also the other stories and stories and narratives. But over time, as we think about racism, there's also this underlining story. And I'm so glad you hit on like the model minority myth. Right. Um, because there is a little bit of tension of, you know, between East Asians and in black communities that own things, stores, um, hair Mm -hmm. stores, these types of things, this narrative of, you know, also this natural tension and violence, even, even within two marginalized communities um, also. And so there's the thing about racism that I think we forget is that it does a number on everyone Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's not just, you know, you know, and so oftentimes, depending on where you fall within the bookends uh, sometimes. We, we start to view everyone as the enemy. And I, I think that's an important call out as you were talking kind of about that. So anyway, I interrupted. But I wanted to say that because that kind of triggered me to say, like, you're so right. And that Asia is the yeah, largest. Yeah, not a continent.
0: And there's a lot of like even um, misunderstandings, even within the Asian community and then add Pacific Islander on top of that. It's Asian American Pacific Islander month and we don't even talk about Pacific Islanders Islanders. usually. And so but from, you know, I can only speak to my personal (laughs) experience, which is as an East Asian woman. But um, the model minority myth really is what we see in the workplace most. Um, we see two stereotypes play out in the workplace, uh, primarily with, um, Asians. It's the other, the perpetual foreigner, the, where are you from, where are you really from type microaggressions and, um, sort of those, all those little stereotypes that fall under that, the submissiveness, the quietness, the, um, all of that, the model minority, the quietness also falls in there. We don't cause trouble. We don't, you know, stir the pot. Um, and then that's how they, that's how we are taught that we can rise in the ranks um, and that we reach a glass ceiling. I think they call it the bamboo ceiling for Asians where you don't see a lot of Asians in like C-level positions or even in manager positions because we're not seen as like the leaders and the traditional alpha characters because of stereotypes. Um, It's also, we see it, um, you know, the competition um, for, for roles and for attention and for credentials and all of that. Sometimes Asian Americans do not stand up for their Black coworkers if there is a conflict in the workplace. And so um, it's always been really important for me when I'm in multicultural spaces. I always am going to remember that we are marginalized first. And that is that is my people, you know, no matter like even if my family is white and my last name is white, the world sees us as others. And so I always sort of gravitate towards people who understand what it's like to be oppressed. Um, And then Asian-American women face another layer to that as well. Um, Something that, you know, the troll that I engage with on Twitter, I was really um, cognizant and wary of was that he had the Asian. Wife, he used that as sort of a card. Um, that's another thing that people, um, don't always see as damaging is that sort of positive stereotype, you know, the Asian yeah. fetish that the, Asian women, uh, yeah. Asian women yeah. are beautiful, tiny dolls, and we see that in the workplace, you know, Asian women are, you know, quiet and subservient, and yeah. that I think is something that I've experienced in my career is that people don't look at me expecting me to stir things up and speak out and, and speak my mind. And when I do, and when that, you know, illusion is shattered, then I see people getting very confused and defensive and um, they don't really know what to do with me. And that's kind of why I've had some trouble, like finding a place where I really felt like I could be my full self.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, That's such an interesting call out, right? Because I think black women also have sort of some similar stereotypes, you know, we're aggressive, we're Mm -hmm. angry, we're all these things, right? And there's this counter. And then when you put the two narratives Mm -hmm. on the opposite end, and the crazy thing is, in my career journey, um, I've had many Asian and Pacific Islander peers Who were some of the best allies, friends to me that one could ever have. So it's so, it's such an interesting dynamic that's perpetuated about these stereotypes. Um, And when you're counter to that stereotype, it even makes it more difficult for you to sort of assimilate into the culture. Um, Mm -hmm. But I appreciate you kind of giving that like overview, right? Because, you know, obviously, you know, I just did a series on microaggression and there, you know, I had, I thought, that this would be a thing that would resonate primarily in um, the U.S., but I had many people, um, particularly in Asia, write me and say, like, thank you for sharing this. And and even in more homogenous cultures, there's still these same type of challenges of like dominant culture beliefs in different ways. Like it resonates in different ways. So we're always having to, um, to check ourselves. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm just, you know, I appreciate you kind of giving this overview because it is a API month. And <laughs> to your point, um, it is, you know, it's one of those things like we, you, we kick it off with black history month. Um, and women's then, history, month. Then women's history month. And then, yeah. And then it, you know, so, uh, I think it's a, it's an important, an important, um, thing to call out and to really share about that narrative and how you kind of fit in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, I want to talk about what is next for you, where can people find you? Um, and and anything that you want to share about what you're doing and how you're kind of, you know, being a trailblazer in this space.
0: So, of course, my, you know, the bulk of my time is dedicated to Dallas TRHT. So we're online at DallasTRHT.org, at Dallas TRHT on every social channel. So, you know, the best way for people to get involved is to sign up for a newsletter, start following us, start listening and learning. We realize that there's sort of different entry points for people based on their journeys on the racial equity sort of spectrum. And so maybe people just need to learn the history. Maybe they already know and understand systemic racism and their ready to start healing from that or maybe they are healed and they just want to make change and they're ready to start advocating with policies so really just joining starting conversations with us and figuring out how you can plug in um personally i am my activist mode is on like full blast right now because of the month and the culmination what is happening in my hometown the attack on um education and 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 trying to erase racism from the history of America when America was founded on such racist ideals and it's so baked into everything it's so important we can't fix racism until we acknowledge the truth that it happened that it existed and if we are if we are not teaching our children that we have no hope of you know that legacy that I talked about dreaming about We're never going to reach that if we don't keep teaching and learning from our mistakes. So my advocacy is really on a local level trying to fix my hometown that has had problems of, you know, student videos being released where they're saying white girls are saying the N word and the school district, you know, planned this a cultural competency plan in a reaction to that and then they got sued by white parents who didn't want their kids to learn about microaggressions like that's the word that they kept using what is a microaggression it's so it's smart. not it's real yeah. uh, have you read
1: you probably haven't read the feedback on my course uh, yeah i mean people really think it's like a real made up thing yeah. um that that brings me to an interesting question for you What do you say to people? uh, What's the best advice you can give? Because I I do feel like one of the hardest things in terms of creating dissonance is this idea that, you know, if I'm a white person, then I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. And so what do you say about people who want to learn about racial equity? But, you know, you know, it is tough to them to be seen as like, because in my humanist, I feel like I'm a good person, like, yeah. w- you know, to say that all these things. And so how do we, how do we not, to, not to say that it's our job to make it palpable. I mean, the history is the history, right? It's not, it's not a great history. Um, if you deep dive into it, but um, where, where do people who have a, a yearning at least to start this, um, but feel um you know, not only complicit, but also feel like they're almost in a way they don't have the they don't have the strength to to deal with that, that um, that piece. How, where do they start in this racial equity journey? So
0: at, at the point where white people really learn how racism has impacted the world and maybe some of the ways that they've perpetuated it 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 is met with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and it's something that i've you know dealt with being a product of a white family and having those privileges in some ways um but i think understanding systemic racism actually alleviate some of that guilt because you realize you are playing into the design you you know like this was the only way that it was going to happen um because this was how it was designed nothing is broken this is working exactly as it was meant to Um, and so it actually helps people take take out the personal and the guilt and the fragility and just realize we're all suffering in this Um, i have privilege and I have power, but that means I have influence, and I can make a really big change. And then also, what I see is people feeling very um, defensive because they, you know, i I didn't, you know, I have good intentions. I'm not racist. So what I always remind people and we say this before any of our racial equity sort of sessions is, impact is more important than intent and for example if i was to walk over to you and like bump into you and spill my scalding hot coffee on your lap i would apologize because i hurt you i didn't go over there with the intent of pouring it and like burning you but i am going to acknowledge that my like error my clumsiness my spilling hurt you. And I'm sorry for it. Um, but right. it, 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 but people expect for racism for someone to say, like, your microaggression hurt me, it would be like me spilling the coffee and being like, that didn't hurt. That wasn't hot. What like you just need tougher skin, you know, um, yeah.
1: so I, he, or it's like, my dad spilled the coffee, yeah, well, I didn't spill and the coffee or the so water, so right? Another,
0: so. so another thing that I tell people too is a really metaphor that i I love from a poet named Guante. He's a spoken word activist. Um, And he says, remember, white supremacy is not the shark, it's the water. And everyone is looking for like their racist uncle as like the problem. But we are all drowning in this system um, and getting distracted by the sharks. Uh, So that is the other thing that I uh, tell people when they they get stuck.
1: That is such a good, good quote. And I think a great thing to end on um, because... Yeah. Racism is the water, not not the shark. I am going to use it again. Um, So I'm telling you now I'm going to borrow that quote. Um, But thank you so much, Stephanie, for like just the light that you are in the world. The purpose of the corporate tea um, really is uh, podcast is to highlight people doing the real work. Um, And you are one of the folks that came to mind as someone that needed to be highlighted, but also to kind of share. Um, you know, uh, how we can all be doing better. So I appreciate your time. Tell the people where they can find you at um, online to follow you and continue to support you.
0: I am at Stephanie Drinka on all social channels, StephanieDrinka.com for my website. And um, the magazine that I found it at Visible Magazine um, is a great follow as well to read more stories from sort of the voices that have been ignored for too long. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for being here. I am honored, uh,
1: that you would, you know, share your time with me. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for
0: holding this space for us.